Hi, my name is Sarah Bienenfeld. I'm standing in our Rutsheva headquarters in Beit El. We live in Toledo, Ohio. We're visiting, and we love our Rutsheva. It's our homepage, and everyone should enjoy it and benefit from its news. This is Aaron Roller from Brooklyn, New York, and I love our Rutsheva because it's a great source of news in Israel. Hi, this is Mindy Roller from Brooklyn, New York, here at Arocheva, and I love Arocheva because it's the best place to get the most factual and actual news from Israel. And tune in on the website, www.israelnationalnews.com. Check it out. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. You're on the Noahide Nation show, and both Adam and I really do appreciate you coming on board with us for this hour. Uh, we've got a very interesting hour. We're going to be speaking with an author of, a, of an outstanding newly released book. Adam, I'm kind of excited about this for a, a lot of reasons, because it... It does have to do with the Judaism side of life, but also the Noahide side of life in a very simplistic sort of way, and yet highly educational at the same time. Well, I, I don't know. Sim- so simplistic in the sense that it seems like we're just you know getting to be party of different conversations, but right. they're very in-depth conversations. But it's it's an exciting show. I've gotten to see this book from uh, the pre-publication version, one of the early versions, to the you know, just finished reading the uh, the book itself as, as it came out. Great well, book. Well, that's right. You were one of the privileged few because you <laughs> happen to know the author. I, I do. Okay. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, let everybody know who he is real quick before we bring him in. His name is uh, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Golding. He's a professor of philosophy at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. He's held research positions at the University of Haifa and the University of Notre Dame the uh, author of Rationality and Religious Theism. He's, uh, had, uh, he has published articles in Religious Studies, Faith and Philosophy, Modern Schoolman, Tradition, and Torah Umada Journal. And uh, like I said, he's a rabbi. And uh, Josh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. And uh, we're, we're asking you to come on board because, you know, uh, I just finished reading your, your book, your new book, um, the conversation, and uh, it was a fantastic book. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Can you uh, just uh, give us a, an idea? What's the, what's the book about? Can you give us sort of an inter- uh, overview? Sure. It's basically a philosophical novel. The main character is a college student by the name of David, and he is a sort of typical American Jewish college student. He comes from... Uh, a Jewish home, but with not much background in terms of religion or Torah. And um, he pretty much knows that he's Jewish. He knows about the state of Israel. He knows about the Holocaust. And he's been told that he's not supposed to marry a non-Jew when he grows up, and he really is not sure exactly why. (laughs) And so this is a kind of a typical American college Jewish student. He comes to a university, and they the novel takes place through four years of college, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, and um, he meets people, he falls in love, he has friends, he uh, takes a few classes, and he gets very interested in philosophy, and he eventually starts going on a sort of spiritual, intellectual journey in which he has many conversations with 
some rabbis, some professors. He has a friend who's Christian, a friend who's sort of a Buddhist. He has a friend who's an atheist. And I called it the conversation because the entire, almost the entire book is one, uh, what's a series of conversations with almost very little narrative. So he also has a lot of uh, emails with rabbi, uh, with rabbis. He has letters that he writes back and forth between himself and his mother. He has phone conversations. Um, but basically the idea is that the reader can sort of follow David along his sort of intellectual spiritual journey and learn um, hopefully quite a lot about Judaism, Jewish philosophy, and also there's um, a fair bit about uh, Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah in the book, as well as um, I do address issues relating to the Noahide commandments from different perspectives. Right, and I, I found that I found that very very interesting the way you uh, you discuss that in the book. Uh, the book overall is is really great because you're you're almost getting sort of a philosophy one hundred and one, and then and then higher. It kind of reminded me when I was in college and the conversations that I had as I was attending college. Um, yes, a lot of it. Is, a lot of the book is sort of I would say semi or quasi autobiographical. As I went through college and had you know many conversations with different types of people, many of them centering around big questions like the meaning of life and is there a God and um, what's the point of religion and the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. So the ma- many of the major issues that any intelligent college student would be thinking about if he were to be going on a sort of spiritual journey are uh, are addressed in the book in a hopefully lively and lifelike way, true to the experience of a college student. And I, th- I think this is actually for, for parents who are about to send their kid off to college. This is probably a nice little uh, idea of what they might be looking at when their kid goes off to college. Um, yes, yeah. Exactly. Well, you yeah. you had you had mentioned briefly about the Noahide laws, right. discussions in the Noahide laws, and uh, I found that interesting because one of David's big questions at the beginning of the book is, you know, here here the Jewish people are they're they're chosen by God, but you know what about everybody else? Is is it the, is it only the Jews and forget about everybody else? Right. And yeah, he, I think that that is definitely a question that would um, you know that might puzzle anybody getting interested in Judaism, and it's an age-old question. Um, sometimes people talk about the problem of chosenness, sometimes the way it's been referred to in the literature. Why would God choose a special people and seemingly ignore the rest of humanity? It doesn't seem to, to make sense on the surface. And this is a problem, so this is a problem that puzzles David. And Is this a, is this a common problem for Jewish high, uh, college students or for Jews in general, or is David a unique... Uh, example? No, I, I think it's a. Uh, I mean, it's not a problem that bothers everybody who's Jewish or interested in Judaism. But I think it's definitely uh, for anyone who's sort of brought up in uh, you know a humanistic type of tradition where we're, especially you know in America, everybody's equal. You know, a democracy. It, it seems like God is playing favorites, right? At least on the surface. Sure. Uh, so I think I think it is a problem that does trouble many, if not all, intelligent Jewish people or people thinking about Judaism. Well, you know, I'd have to add to that as a, as a side note that this is a common problem and issue and question that we know I have as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when 
people first kind of break free of the their previous uh, belief system, and then we start studying the Torah, and we you know start hearing those types of things about you know Jews being the chosen people, and right. you know we even hear uh, lectures by rabbis that imply something much deeper. And yet, I, I agree with you after you know, years of study that it is uh, something that's just really on the surface. Yeah. Uh, but it is a question that you know it's not just uh, intelligent Jews that ask this; it's intelligent Noahides uh, as well. And it's kind of a feeling of uh, you know the rest of the population, the human population being left out of the equation altogether. And you, right. and you actually, and you address that question, and you bring in as your, your your solution, you start talking about the Noahide Law. So how do the Noahide Laws relate to this question and the prob- problem of chosenness? Okay, well, um, what I'd like to say first is that, as I mentioned before, there are different characters in the book with somewhat different perspectives on this, in fact, this particular question as well as others. So in the book, the reader would find some different possible answers. One possible answer that's given by one of the characters in the book is the Noahide laws are given to humanity, and that the Noahide laws represent a sort of universal moral code that all human beings are able to uh, understand and live up to. And so therefore... God, in giving the Noahide laws or giving the Noahide commandments, uh, is not neglecting humanity, but rather providing humans with a a moral framework, a moral system. So that's that's one perspective. Um, and then, in, well, within that perspective, the role of the Jew and the role of the Jewish people is supposed to be more of like a um, a cheerleader or like a sort of like a point man where the idea is that everybody ultimately will one day observe the Noahide laws, and the role of the Jew is just to sort of facilitate this this great end that will happen at some point in the future. Now, that's one perspective. Let me give you another perspective that's offered in the book, which is that, and then you can later ask me if you want which one I agree with myself, but anyway... <laughs> um, another perspective that's given in the book is that really... God would have preferred to give the Torah to all human beings, but um, it just so happened, it turned out that people weren't quite up to it, except for a few people, that's the Jewish people. You know, Abraham was a superstar, and he did certain things that showed that his commitment was to God was exceptional, and therefore, although God would have liked to have given the Torah to all humans, he sort of, as a fallback, had to give the Torah only to the Jews, and then he gave the the rest of the people, the rest of humanity, are given the Noahide commandments as a sort of fallback position. That's another perspective. And then, I think, um, well, to be honest, the perspective that I would tend more to agree with is given by yet a third character in the book, and his perspective is that God provides the Noahide commandments to the human to human beings in order to give them something that goes beyond morality. Morality is one thing, but the Noahide commandments are given to all humans to enable them to have a certain kind of relationship with God that enables them to participate in a relationship with God and also to, let's say, um, merit uh, the world to come. 
Now, the Jewish people, however, are God's intimately chosen people, just sort of in the same way that a king would require, let's say, a community as well as a queen. So the Jewish people, on this view, the Torah is given to the Jewish people because they are supposed to be intimate with God, intensely close to God, and therefore their um, their responsibilities and their commitments are uh, higher than what God expects of man. And man in general, human beings, Noahides, are given a mission to full, conquer and fill the earth, as it says in Genesis, uh, and to become explorers and scientists and musicians and great writers and so on, and maybe even athletes, so that the human being is supposed to be doing a certain kind of a task which requ- which which require, in order to be properly fulfilled, requires observance of the Noahide commandments, yet allows them the latitude to be more involved with uh, developing, uh, you know, science, developing literature, developing the um, that side of of creation, whereas the Jewish people are supposed to are charged with developing a much more intense, high level, close spiritual kinship with God that that um, would not be suitable for everybody. I, so I think you know that's a more kind of a complex explanation. Am I am I being clear? Uh, yeah, in fact, I was just sitting here as, as you were talking, I was thinking, my gosh, we might be able to make several shows out of this just on those three perspectives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, was, I mean, I was just fascinated by the way you presented each one of them, and I'm sitting here actually putting applications to each one of them as well, and, and kind of, in my mind, dissecting the Torah because, I mean, I, I agree with uh, what you were saying, is that the, the nations, and this is in the second perspective, the nations basically turned down the Torah because one, for yep. one reason or another, they weren't up to the task, as, as you say. And yet, when we read Rambam, we as Noahides are able to do all of the, the mitzvot. So it's almost like he's not going to hold all of the nations accountable for those who said no early on, is that we, as Noahides after the fact, can actually say, yeah, you know what, we do like that. And so we have one of two options. We can keep them because we want to, or we can go through the conversion process and keep them uh, as a, a Jewish person would keep them. So I found, I found the, this obviously the second perspective to, to me is one, one that really worked me over. But uh, I could see yeah. where we could do several shows just on, on these three uh, uh, options. What, don't you think, Adam? I mean, this would be great. To- well, you know, there, there's so much complexity, of course, with um, especially the third option. There's a lot more complexity. But, yeah, I mean, you could, do, you, you could really spend a lot of time talking about all of these things. Now, one of the things I, I wonder about is um, – David has these three different options to answer his dilemma, to satisfy his dilemma. And uh, which one do you think he goes he goes with? Do you think he, he he never really draws a conclusion, or do you think he's more or less satisfied? Are uh, you asking which which um, interpretation does David find most uh, compelling? Compelling. Yeah. Uh, it's not entirely clear in the book. Um, but I think that the the latter one is the one he finds 
most satisfying. Now, is that because of the the uh, types of people that he was speaking with along this journey? Because it sounds like they were of uh, quite a varied group of characters that he was involved with along the way. Uh, yeah, well, there there are um, there's several there's a couple of rabbis that he's involved with, um, and there's a professor of philosophy who represents a certain perspective on things and then it turns out that he has a, a relative of his that he discovers who's um, who's in the process of becoming a rabbi and has his perspective on things um, but uh, I guess I guess in the book what I'm more interested in doing as far as the Noahide issue goes is showing that there are these different perspectives and showing that the issue is at least addressed in some way um, and that there there are various positions on the question um, and the, and maybe each each position has a certain merit to it uh, and exactly which position the reader chooses to take is up to him or her you know what I'm saying I I the book is not necessarily um, it is in the form of a novel right it's in the form of a novel with different characters and um, there isn't necessarily a single view that that I'm claiming is the right one yeah he, and I'm just I was just curious about the the character himself because okay. there, there's actually a lot of unresolved uh, Conclusions to questions that he's asking by the end of the book. By no means, by the end of the book, has he resolved everything? He's right. still yeah. a growing, thinking person. Exactly. Uh, right. And and uh, but it's interesting the way he. It does seem to settle something though with him. Like he, I think he comes to realize, you know, like you said, you have these three different um, opinions that he comes in contact with, and it shows him that it's not like the it's not like uh you know the, the torah hasn't given any thought to everybody else and in some ways that's just a a complete misunderstanding of judaism the question of chosenness itself in some ways sort of assumes that uh you know the jewish people aren't concerned with everybody else right and just i mean just the fact of the noahide laws alone is is already i mean a lot of people don't even know that you know a lot of people who are Jewish and who are brought up Jewish. Um, I mean, even many Orthodox Jews don't, they should know about it, um, but certainly many Jews who come from a minimal background, they've never heard of the Noahide Commandments. They don't even, they've never heard of such a thing. You know, and I find that and to be... so that, that in itself, uh, you know, I think when people learn about that, they realize, huh, well, there is... God actually is interested in <laughs> what the non-Jews are doing, at least at some level. And then the question becomes, okay, well then, what is the relationship between the Noahide commandments and the Torah? Why didn't God give the Torah to everybody? Or, you know, that, that at least that pushes the question to, um, to, a, to a new level. But just the fact that there are Noahide commandments, I think, already goes a long way to, to, to um, addressing the problem. And and uh, what I find interesting that you say that they should be aware of this or should know this, and the reason that they should is because you know I, I can't you know every major uh, commentator or or uh, religious leader that I've come across who's written anything about Torah 
at some point says something about the Noahide laws, either right. you know, you know, incidentally or just as kind of a you know a passing comment, or or some of them very in depth comments. And uh, but at the same time, you know, there's uh, there's there's reading, and then there's reading. You know, if you're not really thinking about something, that's not really concerned. You can read right over something, I suppose. Yeah, it's true. Well, well, you know, also a lot of it, a lot of it is, I think, is that if people are familiar with the Bible alone, then they may easily read the all the commandments that are given to Noah or to Adam as, oh, that was, you know, that was ancient history, and then God turned around and gave the Torah to the Jews, and that's really all he cares about. If you're not familiar with the Talmud, with the rabbinic, with the oral tradition, um, you know, you might you might look at it that way, but the oral tradition, the Talmud, makes clear that these are commandments that are binding upon all human beings today. They're not just some ancient thing that God did and then sort of, you know, left behind. So if all you're familiar with is the text of the of the Bible, then um, you could easily sort of come away with the impression that um, from the point of view of the Bible, God doesn't care about what non-Jews do, or something like that. It would be wrong, but it's sort of ex- explainable how that might come about, that misperception. Sure. Right. Well, and uh, the other uh, uh, interesting thing is is the, the statement you made, it's, it really is for all mankind. Uh, even to uh, today, uh, the Noahide is for the, uh, the Noahide laws are for all mankind, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. It's just that the Jews, as as you say, have a more intimate relationship with Hashem, and therefore are required to keep more laws for that purpose. Right, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they th- have a um, an intimate, the same way that a queen would have a higher bar than, let's say, um, you know, someone who's part of the community in a kingdom. That's the idea. Um, well, uh, the way I kind of... To be intimate with God is is a, is a thing that, that's that in a way dangerous. Um, it has more, more obligations, more responsibilities, but it does have a greater intensity. But it's not something that God expects everybody to to be able to do. Well, um, and I've always believed that uh, to whom uh, much is given, much is expected. Absolutely, and right. And uh, I think that, uh, by and large, is is where the the Jewish people are at. I mean, I have a great admiration for them just just in what they've done for these thousands of years and just protecting the the uh, integrity of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it truly is amazing. And uh, uh, actually, it looks like we're getting towards the bottom of the hour here, so we're going to have to scoot on okay. out. Uh, but, uh, 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 Doctor, will you be able to stick around with us for a few minutes? Uh, maybe we can Absolutely. chat a little bit sure, after the break. Okay, great. Uh, Adam, let's get on out of here, do a little uh, business with uh, Israel National Radio, and uh, we'll go ahead and catch the folks on the other side. See you guys soon. Hi, this is Tim from the occupied Aboriginal Territory of Australia, and I'm having a wonderful time visiting here at the Arutsheva radio station, which has been a real lifeline for me in Australia. 
And I just had a wonderful time sitting in on uh, the Derek Eretz show. And I encourage you all to tune in to Arutz Sheva, Israel National Radio. Thanks very much. You are listening to Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalRadio.com. Stick around for the second half of our Noahide Nation show here. Adam and I have had the pleasure and privilege of speaking with Dr. Joshua Golding regarding his book titled The Conversation. And it is a very intriguing book. I mean, even the, the more I've talked about it and listened to you talk about it, I'm really intrigued by the whole thing. I really, I really, for me personally, I like the fact that you're not trying to drive home an agenda that's your agenda. You leave it kind of open-ended with some significant and serious options in which people can at least investigate whether or not they make a decision on any of them is irrelevant. You give people the opportunity to think about it. Right. During the break, we're kind of uh, talking about something that is very intriguing to us Gentiles in particular, and it's that word Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And it uh, even the word sounds intriguing, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It sounds very mysterious. So, can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of it in in the book, Doctor Golding? Well, yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, let me say first that the major section in which Kabbalah comes up is in the junior year, where the main character David finds out that he has this relative who's actually quite orthodox and is a serious student of Kabbalah and starts teaching David some of the fundamentals of Jewish mysticism. So that happens in the junior year. There's kind of like a mini course almost on the basic elements of Kabbalah and how they help to illuminate Jewish prayer, Jewish practice. It it gives you a whole framework for understanding how God interacts with the world and what the role of the Jew is in fulfilling mitzvot and also even the non-Jew. So that's in the junior year. Another way in which Kabbalah comes up in the book is in the structure of the book. There's a very central teaching of Kabbalah, and that is that the name of God, which we usually refer to as the Tetragrammaton, or the four-lettered name of God, which is the Yud, and then the Hey, then the Vav, and the Hey. Right. That name of God reflects or symbolizes certain what are called spheros or modes through which God manifests himself in the world because I mean the central idea is that well God himself is infinite and ineffable and indescribable yet God manifests himself in a way that is accessible to us right so for example we speak of God's benevolence and God's justice we speak of God's wisdom and God's intelligence God's mercy and so on At any rate, the Kabbalah teaches that the four letters of the name of God represent certain aspects or modes in which God is manifest. And indeed, working from the last letter of the name backward and going toward the first letter of the name, the Yud, you are sort of uh, going from the more outward manifestations of God to the more inner or intimate manifestations of God. So what I've done in the book, and this is something that the average reader, when he picks up the book, he'll notice that the freshman year has the letter Hey, which is the last letter of God's name. The freshman year has 
the hay on the front page of the first section, and then the sophomore year has a vav, which is the third letter of God's name, and the junior year has another hay, that's the second letter of God's name, and finally the senior year, which is the crowning year, has a yud as a sort of frontispiece. So the idea is that the name of God actually stands for what you might call a spiritual ladder, that you start from certain lower levels and you work your way up to a higher level, both in terms of your spiritual growth, intellectual growth, in terms of sort of purifying yourself. There's a kind of, actually, the morning prayer that's said as part of the daily liturgy has this structure. Even many Orthodox Jews do not know this, but in Kabbalah, in Jewish mysticism, this is a very big idea that when you, the morning prayers follow this kind of structure from lower to higher. And I try to reflect that in the book because in the freshman year, and even the words freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, actually reflect this sort of process of going from a lower to a higher. Freshman is like, you know, you're a fresh man, right? You're new, you're sort of, um, you don't know much, you're kind of a dilettante, and that's the way David is in the freshman year. He's kind of exploring, he's picking and poking at different ideas. Sophomore year, he gets a little bit more serious. He also thinks he knows a lot more. And actually, the word sophomore reflects that because sophos comes from wise, but moron, moron is, you know, someone who's not so wise. So the sophomore is kind of in between. Then junior and senior reflect also another level of advancement where in your junior year, you're again sort of back at the beginning. You're starting off, but then in your senior year, you sort of reach a kind of wisdom. And indeed, in the book, for example, in the senior year, wisdom and the nature of wisdom is one of the major topics that's addressed in the senior year. So the structure of the book actually reflects this Kabbalistic structure, which is the way that God is manifest in the world. Wow. Uh, that was a mouthful. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, it, yeah, it's, it's hard to explain it anymore other than I think, you know, if people are more interested to read the book. But if you have a specific question, I'd be... Well, I'll just say this, and this is, I found this very fascinating about the book. When you're learning Kabbalah, you're supposed to have somebody sort of guiding you through and telling you right. how to understand things and how to learn things. Right. But, you know, when you're reading his book, one of the fascinating things is, is that as you're reading the book, it's almost like you have a guide telling you how to read the book and understand it. Because there are all these hints throughout. Whereas you're reading, if you're careful enough and thinking about what, what's being said, you go, hey, I wonder if he means if I do this with this book, I'll understand yeah. more th- about what's going on. And it's a really kind of a, a cool thing because especially when you get to the um, junior year and he starts talking about the Kabbalah and he talks about this ladder and everything, it becomes really pretty apparent and you start thinking about everything you've read up to that point and you start really going, oh, wow, he's telling me how to understand this book. You know, Right. right. There's a lot of self-referential things going on in the book. I mean, like, for example, there's a lot of discussion in the book about texts for example, and the significance of different types of texts. And one of the cute things in the book, if I may say, is that the different texts in the book, for example, there are emails, there's letters, there's also journal entries. I didn't mention that earlier, that the main character starts keeping a journal, and so the journal is sort of, it looks like a handwritten typeface. And then eventually, you know, he takes a class. He's, there's at one point he's taking a class in the Talmud, so a page of Talmud is actually reproduced in the book. There's various other texts in the book. For example, the Kaddish turns out to be in the book, the, um, the Mourner's Kaddish. There's various poems that are in the book throughout, and the typeface of the 
text is supposed to also reflect deep, I hope, deep issues that are being communicated through the book so that the form or the structure, the, even the very appearance of the book, is supposed to be educational as well. You'd mentioned earlier that people were had some questions for you. I'd like to go ahead and you know, let the folks know that they can go ahead and send those questions into us here at Israel National Radio at noahide at israelnationalradio.com, and we'll go ahead and forward those questions to Dr. Golding, and he'll be able to answer them and fire them on back to you. And also, for those of you who are interested in reading the book, which I'm sure many of you are at this point, you want to go to Amazon.com. Now, there's a lot of places that are actually selling it, but uh, Amazon is a pretty big place. And the book title, again, is The Conversation. For those of you interested in buying it, I would definitely encourage you to do so. And, Doctor, we've only got a few minutes left, and I don't know if you can make this happen or not, but I am intrigued with everything going on in this book. Whatever possessed you to come up with this idea? I mean, this is pretty incredible stuff. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I, um, you know, I, when I was a child, I always wanted to be, I wanted to write stories. I wanted to write plays and fiction and then in my high school years, I kind of got interested in philosophy, and I sort of left behind the fictional, the fiction idea. And then sort of at some point in my graduate student years, I started thinking, you know, it'd be nice to sort of try to combine the two interests that I had of writing a book that had philosophy in it, but also had a personal dimension. Because uh, after all, Plato, who was, you know, among the famous first philosophers, wrote in dialogue form with characters, and his characters had real personality. So I wanted to try to show how different views that people can have affect and integrate with their personalities. You know, that as, for example, the David character, as he learns about philosophy and about Judaism, he changes. You know, that was one one of the goals I had in writing the book in this way, was to show that your views, even about very abstruse metaphysical questions, can very uh, strongly influence and color the way you act, the way you behave, the way you interact with other people. And so also I kind of, the book was also a catharsis for me because many of the sort of spiritual wanderings that my character David goes through in this book are some of the spiritual wanderings that I've gone through but also some of his teachers are reflections of some of the different views that I've explored as well. So it was both a catharsis to write the book, and I also think it fills a niche. I think there's really, um, this book really fills a, fills a niche that is sorely missing out there or not, not, not being filled in a certain way. Because there's lots of books about Judaism and books about philosophy, and then, of course, there's lots of novels. But this, I think, is a very unique combination. I, I can't help but agree. And for Noahides, this offers a lot more than what might appear to be on the surface. You know, uh, in this one, I, I know we're running out of time, and I just want to ask one thing. Yeah. The book is kind of open-ended in a sense, and it leaves it open-ended, and you have to wonder, is there going to be a sequel? Um, I, I think I'd like to see how the book is received. You know, I mean, I know that some people are very excited about the book. I've sold numbers of copies of the book already. I just kind of want to see... There is. I do have a sequel in mind. Let's put it that way. I, I'm not sure I'm going to write it 
unless I see that there really is a, a desire for it out there. You have my vote. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, oh, thank you. I was going to say too, Doctor, if you know when Hollywood comes to you and wants to do a movie, um, yeah. you know, I, I'd be happy to play one of the, you know, the the Gentiles in in the book. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you're probably not going to want to play the atheist, though, but anyway. I don't know if I'd be able to do it very well. Okay. I'd be willing to give it a try, though. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Doctor, it's been great having you with us, and I, I'm overflowing with more questions. Do you, How do you feel about coming back next week and you know, maybe answering a few more questions for us? Will that work for you at all? Absolutely. I'd be more than happy to. Adam, that worked for you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Beautiful. Beautiful. I think we ought to do that. Well, in the meantime, folks, we've got George Brock joining us once again, and he's going to continue on this week with another Noahide teaching. And uh, I know you folks are liking it. We're getting some uh, emails in on it. For those of you who want to comment or ask George questions, please feel free and shoot them into our email at noahide at israelnationalradio.com. And, Doctor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Take care. Talk to you next week. All right. Bye. I would like to thank Noahide Nations and Israeli National Radio for allowing us to share Noahide teachings to Gentiles everywhere. The teachings of the sages as taught to us by the rabbis. It's an honor to be here. My name is George Brock, and Jack McCarter will be assisting me with scripture reading. We're going to break this down into three segments. The first segment is, how do you begin to teach Noahites? Well, in martial arts, each week we give teachings that uh, relate to life and relate to Torah. And uh, we start with these, and every day we give them a different teaching. And so we've probably had at least 50 to 60 uh, martial arts students become Noahites. So this is how we do it. I hope it will help you as our first segment. The first thing we teach is how to receive. To receive, one must make space. To make space spiritually, one must come with an open mind second thing we teach is respect to show respect one must learn balance to understand that one is no more than a man and one is no less than a man when people start praising you realize you're no more than a man and when you make mistakes realize you're no less than a man it's just your humanity showing next we teach reality to understand reality one must live in the moment what is If one lives in the past, one will rob his present. If one lives in the future, one is living in illusion. Now, we have to remember our past, but we don't live in our past. Next is unity. To learn unity, one must learn to become selfless. The selfish look into the mirror and they see only themselves alone and separate. But the selfless look into the mirror and they see themselves as a part of a whole, united as one. The mirror is the Torah, which teaches the unity of God's oneness. And finally, we teach truth. All that exists is truth. Anything outside of truth is an illusion. It's not real. It only exists in one's mind. Attack it in its world and it will disappear. Let it come into your world and it will become real to you. The next segment that we'll be teaching here is on our Noahide teachings. The first thing that people, that Gentiles want to know is, 
and need to know is who God is, who we are, and to know the difference. So we start our teaching with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning of God's created, creating the heavens and the earth. Okay. First of all, who is the creator? How and why did he create creation? Well, the purpose of the Ainsof, which is the endless one, existed before creation. His presence occupied all space with his light. The Ainsof wanted to create a vessel that could receive the essence of his light. The problem was there was no place in which to create. So the Ainsof's first act was to constrict the light from a certain place so that to reduce the intensity to create an empty space. This construction reduced the light, creating darkness in order to share the light and allow for freedom to choose between light and darkness, free will. Our food for thought. The Ainsof is above all intellect and wisdom. He is not within the realms of comprehension at all. He is beyond all while present in all. He is the oneness of all reality. He forms all shapes, yet is beyond all shapes. So the Ain Sof, the endless one, is the giving force that is the essence and purpose of creation. Creation is the receiving force that the giving force creates. Our purpose in creation is to discover our creator. When we look in Torah and we see the generic name God, we understand that this is the imminent light. It is the light that creates the vessel. And it's the power of God for creation. When we see the name Lord, we identify this with Hashem, which means the name, and it's the presence of the transcendent light. Transcendent light is light that transcends what we can see, and it's the presence of God in everything. And these powers are controlled by the will of the Ainsof, and we realize that nothing exists except the will of the Ainsof. What if one wants to become a vessel that illuminates light? One must shatter his vessel to receive for himself alone, choosing to become a vessel to receive only to give pleasure to his creator. The third segment is our teaching, or what we call untying the knots. Now this is not to win an argument. This is simply to understand uh, for those who have come out of Christianity or who, who are contemplating seeking truth how we came out of Christianity. The, we call this untying the knots. These are things that held us in check until we released the goodness found in the negative teachings of Torah. Okay. So let's look at it. So how did we get? How do you get your family and friends to listen to Torah? Well, there's three scriptures one can use to get those who are seeking truth, and this is the key. If they're not seeking truth, you're not trying to win an argument. This is not for them. This is for you to help them who are seeking. First of all, we are going to read from Ecclesiastes seven and verse fourteen. Be pleased when things go well, but in time of misfortune, reflect. God has made the one as well as the other so that man should find nothing after him. Okay, we know that God has made opposites. 
so if there is a truth, there has to also be an illusion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to point out the illusions and we're going to point out truth. We are going to try to find some grounds for agreement so that we can not argue about scriptures, but find a basis for truth. So we're going to start in the New Testament in John 7 and verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. So Jesus said that his doctrine is not his own. In fact, he says it's the doctrine of the one who sent him, and he's saying that God is the one who sent him. So let's look at Matthew 4.4. 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. All right. So Jesus taught that one lives by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, and we know that to be the Torah. So here we have Jesus who teaches only the Torah, and he teaches only the word of God. So let's look at Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor shall you subtract from it, to observe the commandments of Hashem your God that I command you. Once we've found these scriptures, we found out that Jesus could not add to the Torah, nor take away from it, because Jesus was supposed to have filled all of the law. And the law plainly says here that you cannot add to or take away from it. So, we have to conclude that uh, whether you're a Christian or whether you're a Noahide, or whether you're a Jew, all creation, all human beings are under the teachings of the Torah. And uh, this is according to their teachings and according to uh, the teachings of Torah. All right. So our food for thought. One who rejects the Torah attempts to escape reality, what is, to the way they wish things were. Everything outside of the Torah then becomes an illusion, the opposite of the way one thinks it is. Now, we're going to look at a few terms here. One of them is called content. When one is not content with truth, one will contend with the truth. And this is what happens when people argue the truth with you if you are giving Torah. Because plainly, they're supposed to be under Torah. We're under Torah. Fear. This is why they want to fight the truth. Some reject the truth because they're afraid truth would take away their desires for more. Others are afraid and reject the truth because they have a fear of change and the effects that this might have on their family and friends. We conclude with our spiritual sparks. The only fear a believer should have is the fear of God. I want to thank you for this time, for allowing us to share Torah with uh, Noahide Nations. And we thank you, and with all the people who are listening, Shavuotov. Have a good week. This is Jenny. I'm here at Israel National Radio. I'm so happy and uh, God bless Israel. 大家好,我是廖文林,现在是在 Israel Radio Station这里. I really uh, encourage everyone to come back to the Israel and this is a holy land. This is Israel National Radio. I'm happy. God bless this place, protect this place and be wisdom always. You're listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com.